Heavenly Father, we are uh, thankful I'm here, strength uh, that I have the strength to teach, that I have the, the room who wants to hear your word, Father, all the things we need to, uh, to assemble in your name and under your care and guidance and to do the work of ministry you've called us to do. Uh, Father, thank you for the blessing that it is to be in your word and to, to be a part of this fellowship. Bless our time together tonight, Father. Open the word before us by your spirit. Teach us things, Father, we need to understand and do. Give us the courage to do it. Uh, speak to us each, Father, about where our lives are not, inconsist- are not consistent with what you're telling us to do in this book, Father, so that we'll have an honest assessment of ourselves. We'll be willing to step out and do the things you've called us to do. Because, Father, at the end of the day, our goal is to please you. And it's not to please the world. It's not to gain accolades. Uh, it's not even to feel good about ourselves, Father. Our goal is to please you. And sometimes we need to feel honestly about ourselves in ways that don't please us if we're going to please you. So let's... Uh, Let's uh, hear those things from you tonight, Father. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are moving now through the bullseye to the next ring in the bullseye that I've described to you, this priority scheme for our sanctification. Last week when we studied this for the first time, and I showed you the chart of the bullseye, I said this is a way of understanding Paul's command to us that we pursue righteousness in our relationships. That is, remember, we're talking now about our righteousness lived out before people, not our righteousness before God. So our righteousness before God is obtained solely by our faith in Jesus Christ. So from the standpoint of God's judgment, you are already 100% righteous for the sake of salvation by faith alone. You already have that standing with him because you've received a perfect spirit. But the question still remains, how closely does your life reflect Christ's righteousness? We're 100% righteous by faith in Christ, but is our life a reflection of that righteousness? So does your thinking and your behavior comport with that perfect standard that Christ set for us? Now, of course, the answer to that last question, does your life comport with the perfect standard? No, the answer to that is no. We know that. None of us will live a perfectly sinless life given the sin nature of our flesh. And you knew I was going to say that, right? No one's perfect, right? You knew I was going to say that. But here's the other side of that story. That doesn't mean that as a Christian we have to concede to the inevitability of our sin or turn a blind eye to it. While you may not be able to live sinlessly, by the grace of God, you have the power through the Spirit to get close, probably closer than you have been willing to admit. Someone once observed Christians aren't sinless, but you should sin less. So over the centuries, many Christian men and women have made the pursuit of godliness, their life's priority. And some, as a result, have succeeded in conforming their lives so closely to Christ's example that the world saw them as blameless. Their lives became such testimonies to godliness that whatever sin remained in them was barely noticeable. Many of us may know someone like that, that we've grown to admire. Usually they're older. Usually they've been in the church a while. And they usually have a very disciplined life around prayer and study and things that we admire. And its result is evident in the life they lead. Now, if that sounds like an impossible goal to you, then perhaps you haven't given enough attention to the task that Paul outlined in the first two verses of chapter 12, because that's where that process has to start. That's the bullseye of our chart. Verses 1 and 2 are the part of this priority scheme where Paul is addressing the righteousness in our person, that is, our personal character, and how that relates to God, our relationship with God as a result of that walk we have. Paul said our life goal should be to make ourselves a living sacrifice for the needs of serving Christ and his glory. You make that sacrifice daily, and you do it by rejecting the world's priorities and seeking the mind of Christ. 
You renew your thinking through the Word of God, and that allows that new thinking to generate in you new behaviors, righteous behaviors that demonstrate to the world what is God's will concerning what is good and what is perfect and right. So that's the starting point for the pursuit of sanctification. It makes the rest of the journey possible. Any Christian who is not working on their own righteousness in that sense, concerning them, what, how they think, how they live as a result of their thinking, whether they're willing to make the daily sacrifices Christ calls us to make of the things we want so that we make room for the things he wants. If that's not a part of how you live your life daily, then you have nothing to offer anyone else in the area of spiritual maturity. You have nothing to draw from, much less to offer to anyone else. And so any work of sanctification in the individual Christian has to begin at the center of this bullseye where we're working on our personal righteousness in our relationship with God. If our personal righteousness in our relationship with God, if it is not a priority and as a result it suffers, then our fellowship with him will suffer. Not our relationship with him, not our salvation with, but our relationship in the sense of our fellowship with him. You'll become distant from God. And not because he moved away from you, but because you moved away from him. Your prayer life will evaporate. Your interest in God's word will wane. And your resistance to Satan's schemes will weaken. That's a general pattern, not a firm rule. But in general, when we're not working on ourselves in that sense and being more Christ-like in our thoughts and behaviors as an individual... As you move away from that, the only thing you move to is the world. That's the only two choices in this path. You're either moving toward Christ or toward the world. As you become weak spiritually, your sin nature has every opportunity to reassert itself. As a result, you don't have the spiritual strength to tackle anything that's called for in those outer rings. It's literally a one or the other. You're either moving forward toward Christ or you're moving back toward your flesh. No one stands still in this system because the sin nature of your flesh is alive and active constantly. It doesn't give you a break. It doesn't give you the chance to stand still. Because standing still would mean not pursuing. And if you're not pursuing, you're being dragged backward. It's the nature of the problem. As Jesus spoke in John 7:37, On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as Scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. The spiritual strength that the Spirit brings to our spirit becomes a source from which we then can bless others spiritually. But if you're not pursuing personal righteousness under the Spirit's guidance, it's as if you've turned off that tap in a, in a metaphoric sense, and as a result, you dry up. What do you have to encourage or instruct anyone else? Nothing. So that's the principle that underlies this whole system represented by the bullseye. The strength you gain in one realm, starting at the center, becomes the means by which you bless someone in the next ring going outward, which is why you can't skip a ring. Uh, You can't ignore your personal relationship with God and expect that you're going to have proper relationships in the church. And you can't neglect those relationships in the body of Christ and somehow expect that you're going to be a powerful witness for Christ in the world. What you learn in the first ring helps you in what you have to do in the next. So with that understanding, let's press on. We're moving out of the first ring, but next we go to the second ring, the one that is your righteousness in relationships within the church. And that begins in verse 3. Paul says in verse 3, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, 
Each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, well, according to the proportion of his faith. If service, in his serving. Or he who teaches, in his teaching. Or he who exhorts, in his exhortation. He who gives, with liberality. He who leads, with diligence. He who shows mercy, with cheerfulness. All right, so Paul begins his teaching on relationships in the body of Christ with a lesson on spiritual gifts, as you can tell. He says that by the grace given to him by the Lord, he is now instructing you and I, the church, on how we maintain a proper perspective on ourselves. So Paul starts by saying, we ought not think too highly of ourselves. Or more so accurately, don't think more highly than you ought. So notice, Paul did not say you can't think highly of yourself. Uh, He didn't say that everyone in the church is equal and we can't make distinctions. What he said was, you need to appreciate the degree of the importance that you have in the body. So that's both avoiding false humility and avoiding self-importance on either end. So some members in the body are called by God to play more important roles in the body than others will play. But these differences are entirely spiritual. They're not personal. They're not physical. They cannot become the basis for us to value one member in the body over another. No one here is more important. No one is less important. And Paul's trying to make that point clearly. But there are differences. Notice Paul begins the command by saying, by the grace given to me, and then he goes on to instruct us. In other words, Paul's applying the same rule to himself that he just asked everybody else in the body to follow as he goes forward. And what's the rule he's applying to himself? Paul is saying, well, God has, by his grace, made me an apostle. So by the grace given to me to be an apostle, that means I have the authority to give you these instructions. So as I act now in the grace given to me, I'm telling you, do the same thing. Whatever grace was given to you. That's the standard by which we all consider our importance to the body of Christ. Here's what Paul is saying. God has assigned a degree of grace, we would say, to each believer so that we might assume an appropriate position of authority and service in the body. To some, God's assigned a greater grace, we could say, to assume greater positions of authority or service, like an apostle in Paul's case. To others, God has assigned lesser positions of authority or service. But nonetheless, no member of the body is more important or less important to the body, nor is anybody expendable. Paul is calling for us to respect God's decision concerning our assignment within the body and then to serve him contentfully in that place, whatever it is that he's assigned us. Now, Paul calls such thinking sound judgment, which is in contrast to thinking too highly or more highly of yourself than you ought. So we think more highly of ourselves when we ought by presuming to take a place within the body other than that one which God has assigned to us. Pride is generally the thing that's going to drive someone to do that kind of thing, to look for something greater than they ought to have or to be jealous of what somebody else has in the body of Christ. And if you're going to pursue sanctifying relationships in this second ring, if you're going to do that, That whole process will depend on whether you are serving contentfully in an assigned place. If you are not content in your role or don't even know what your role is, you're in a very poor position in which to then work out a sanctifying relationship within the body because you're you're floating aimlessly yourself, much less aware of what your role is. So that begs the question, how do I know what role God has assigned me within the body of Christ? Well, Paul says that our place and our prominence in the body is determined by the measure of faith God has allotted to us, he says. And that term, measure of faith, it's a bit deceiving. It would seem to suggest to us that there's that, that this whole thing turns on our own degree of personal faith in God and that that determines where we sit in the body. 
which if that were the way it was intended, if that were true, that would mean you could aspire to greater roles within the church as your personal faith matured, right? Well, that would actually contradict Paul's central point, which is don't think too highly of yourself. You you can't aspire without thinking too highly. You're thinking of yourself as worthy more than what you have. And that's the contrary to what Paul's saying. So in reality, Paul's not referring to your personal faith when he says a measure of faith. He's speaking in a euphemism. In Greek, the phrase measure of faith could be translated as poetic meter of faith. So what he's saying is God has allotted to each of us a measure of some larger artistic work, like playing an instrument in a symphony or being a stanza in a poem, some epic poem. God has allotted to each of us some place in his production. And if you play your part properly, you're going to produce a beautiful musical or a beautiful poetry with your brothers and sisters. Now, notice in verse 4, Paul reminds us that each part in that production has a purpose and has a value all its own. We are all members of a single body called the church, the body of Christ, and therefore we're called to operate as a whole, like an orchestra or like the individual members of the human body, as Paul says. So if you want to test the theory that everyone's important, even if you're not a big shot, you may not feel like your big toe is very important, but I, I would challenge you to try to walk without it. You know, you can't. If you take your big toes off your feet, you can't walk. It's impossible. The big toe is an essential part of how you balance yourself when you walk. So it's just an illustration that even something small and somewhat insignificant in your mind turns out to be much more important in the end than you realize. And the same is true in Paul's analogy. If an orchestra is going to produce a sound that's pleasing to the director, every instrument has to do what it's there to do. If the woodwinds cannot suddenly become jealous of the strings and try to take over their part of the music, it's not going to work right. It's going to be cacophony at that point. So each of us has to play the part that we're assigned by God within the body, And that measure of faith is a way of saying the assigned role, and that comes back to the central question, by which way do we know this measure of faith? And we find out as Paul goes further that Paul is speaking specifically about spiritual gifts. The spiritual gift that you receive from God is your measure of faith. It is the determining criteria for how and where you play a part in the body of Christ. He says, we have gifts that differ according to the grace that God has given us, and we therefore are to operate in the body according to those gifts. Here's the simple way to understand it. The spiritual gift you receive from God determines the role and place you play in the body of Christ. From here, Paul moves into giving a brief list of spiritual gifts and how they are to be used in keeping with his teaching. Now, before we look at the list, we need to spend a moment just to consider this topic of spiritual gifts in general and more particularly the fact that Paul's giving us a list of gifts. Let's think about that for a minute. This is one of three such lists that Paul gives in the New Testament. The other two lists are found in 1 Corinthians and in Ephesians. And all three of these were given by Paul, and yet all three lists will vary slightly, one from another, in the gifts that are listed. And so as a result, you know that in each list that we have, the three that we have, we know that Paul did not intend that any one of those three would be a definitive list of gifts. We know that because he gave us other gifts and other lists. So that would tell you automatically that each of those gifts, each of those lists was an example set. It was a set of example gifts. And some have tried to solve this problem. I say, well, maybe if I combine all three, throw out the duplicates, I have a definitive inventory of all gifts available for Christians. But I don't think that's how Paul expected us to use those three lists either. Because when you consider the surrounding context in each case, 
in each of those three letters, Romans, Ephesians, and 1 Corinthians, it's clear in all cases that Paul was using his list as simply an example to prove a point that he was making in each of those letters. And he gave examples of spiritual gifts just to support his argument. And the context of each of those letters is different. And therefore, the list he provided is different to match the context of what he was teaching. So in Ephesians, if you're interested, Paul's explaining the ultimate purpose for God giving gifts to the body of Christ. And that was to encourage unity, our dependence on one another, our need to come together in order to get everything we want. In 1 Corinthians, Paul's explaining the proper regulation of spiritual gifts when they operate in the corporate gathering so that they remain edifying. So there, his emphasis is on making sure that one gift doesn't trample over another or interfere with the other's ability to be edifying. How do they fit together was the topic in 1 Corinthians. And here in Romans, Paul's explaining that the relative importance of different spiritual gifts defines how we serve within the body. It defines our role within the body. And so we worked on gifts that had that focus. And so you have three different lists of spiritual gifts, each as examples to prove three different points. No single list is a definitive inventory. And therefore, combining all three lists won't arrive at an inventory either. In fact, for all we know, the actual list of spiritual gifts that God can use within the church might be infinite. One of the ones you don't see on any of the lists is prayer. But I'm convinced there's a gift of prayer. You don't see mentions of music or other works gifts. You don't see the gifts that were given to the workers who built the temple, but we know those are spiritual gifts because they were given before. Uh, There's just so many ways to see the list without finding the one you're looking for that we have to believe these are never intended to give us the final word on what you can be gifted with. Don't let anybody narrow you into thinking you have to pick off one of these lists so you don't find yourself. That's actually a bad way to start the process because you're probably likely not to find yourself if you're not one of those gifts. So there isn't some place I can send you on Wikipedia that you will find all the lists of gifts. That's going to be an intuitive understanding based on the Spirit's leading in your life. As you look at the list here in Romans 12, let's keep to its context, explaining how you serve in the body based on how you've been gifted so that you will not think too highly of yourself. And he begins his list with the gift of prophecy. Now, notice Paul assigns a descriptor to each gift to emphasize how someone with that gift would embrace their assigned role wholeheartedly. So for the one who has the gift of prophecy, that person should use it, Paul says, according to the proportion of his faith. So the gift of prophecy, to to define it for you, is the gift of speaking the revelation of God, something unknowable apart from that revelation of God. All scripture is prophecy. It's all been given to us as a result of someone who had a gift of prophecy. So in Paul's day, the gift of prophecy was still at work. Paul was an apostle. Apostles had the ability to be prophets. They were the New Testament prophets. So in Paul's day, the gift of prophecy was still at work, authoring the New Testament through the apostles, like here in the case of Romans. But after the last apostle died, the canon of Scripture was closed, and no Scripture was authored thereafter. So many believe that this spiritual gift has met its intended purpose, and therefore it has ceased to be available in the body of Christ. Others would tell you that that a lesser form of prophecy, that of foretelling future events or revealing special revelation of God apart from Scripture, that that continues to operate in the body today. My personal view is that all prophecy ended with the closing of the canon. And therefore, this particular gift is, is ceased to operate in the body. If you think you ever see someone or if someone ever claims to be doing this, it's my contention that that's a false sign. But regardless of your view of prophecy today, we know in Paul's day the gift was still operating. 
which is why Paul writes about the gift still operating in this letter. So in other words, you can't say, look, Paul said there's a gift of prophecy, therefore we know there's still one today. You can't draw your conclusion based on that observation because we can also explain it this way. We can say Paul included it because it was still happening in his day. That doesn't guarantee it was always going to be happening. Either way, Paul writes about it as still operating. And to those who had that gift in Paul's day, Paul says they should use it in proportion to their faith, which means just use it according to how God leads you, as the prophet would be led by God. So some prophets receive greater revelation, or faith, as Paul calls it. Other prophets receive less. So Paul's just saying, look, if you're a prophet, what's your station in the church? What's your role? What's your responsibility? What should you expect to do? Well, he says, basically, just stick to doing prophesying and do it as the Lord directs. That's how you do what you're called to do. The prophet didn't need to always have a word from the Lord. Every time the group got together, sometimes the prophet had nothing. You don't have to have a word because you've been getting words. You just have to give the word he gives you and nothing more. Just prophesy according to his leading, and you're doing your job. You don't have to aspire to something bigger. You don't have to have more words next week. You know, The thought was, you have a role, be content with what it provides. Don't seek for some greater version of it. And likewise, we all serve the Lord best by serving his people with the gift he's given us. So if God gifts you with a gift of service, serve to the best of your ability. If you have the gift of teaching, you serve God best in teaching. Exhortation, exhort. If you give, if your gift is in giving, well, then give generously. You get the point, right? It's repetitive for a reason. He's making the point over and over again. He's saying, if that's what you are, do it. And no more, no less. So your place and role in the body is determined by your spiritual gift, not by a preference, not by a specific opportunity, not because of some need emerging in the body and you happen to have some free time. That's not how you find your place. Those can be moments, and sometimes we draw people in from wherever because we have a need in a moment. But that shouldn't be your long-term goal. It shouldn't be your, your guiding light in the way you work within the body. There are a lot of things we could do to serve Christ, but there's only one service we should do, and it's based on our gift. That area of focus will be yours for life. It's the best way you can serve God. Now, in my case, as it should be obvious, I'm gifted by God to teach his word, so I teach his word to the exclusion of virtually anything else I could do to serve the body. Now, I'm not excluded from working in other capacities on occasion, but I should not seek for a permanent station outside my assigned role of teaching. You know, this is the basis of Acts When we hear that the apostles say it's not right that we should feed widows, we need to devote ourselves to prayer and to teaching. What they were saying is essentially this truth. They're saying there's a lot of things I could do that are worthy to be done, but they're not being done by me because that's not my gift. Let's go find seven guys who have the gift to serve and let's get them serving. And that's how they solve the problem. And this only makes sense, right? If I pursue a service role or a mercy role, anybody who knows me well would know that would be a mistake, I would be doing what Paul just said I shouldn't do. I would actually be thinking more highly of myself than I ought. Now, you understand what that means, right? We're not saying that teaching is below these other gifts. We're saying when you move outside what you have for something else you think you should have, you're thinking too highly of yourself in that sense. You're assuming that you can please God by serving in ways that you prefer rather than in submitting to the calling and gifting that he's given to you, which is his judgment for you. Remember, when you serve in your spiritual gift, you're going to serve with the greatest strength You're going to serve with the greatest joy and you're going to obtain the most spiritual fruit because you're doing it with God doing it through you. A spiritual gift is a God-given supernatural ability. It's the ability to do spiritual things that you could not do on your own so that as you bear fruit doing it, God receives the glory. So if you spend your time working outside your spiritual gifting area, 
you will not accomplish the work that God intended for you, and the results you do accomplish will be far less than they could have been otherwise. Now, if you've ever sat in a Bible study led by someone who wasn't gifted to teach the Bible, then you know how painful that experience can be. You won't necessarily tell them because you want to be nice to them, right? And I wonder if that's my situation in here right now or something. You'll bear with them for a period of time, right? But in your heart of hearts, you know that guy or gal should not be teaching. That kind of situation is an example of someone thinking too highly of themselves. And they may not have had that impression of themselves. They may not think of themselves in that way of being haughty or being prideful. It doesn't necessarily come out in that way. The whole point of it, though, is that person had to overlook other opportunities that were tailor-made to their gifting and seize on an opportunity that they preferred and excused it as a service to God. And we all have a tendency to do that, and it's okay in a moment, but that moment should be useful in correcting us back. It should be self-evident. It should show us in the moment, well, wait a minute, this isn't for me after all. Let me get back to what I'm good at. It should not hold us there. And by the way, even a pastor can get this wrong. A pastor who assumes a teaching role from the pulpit over a congregation but has not been gifted with a teaching gift is not going to edify the body. And unfortunately, that's a cultural expectation that we've come to for some reason, that pastors have to be teachers from a pulpit on a Sunday. And that's not true at all. A pastor who had the humility and and self-awareness to recognize they didn't have the gift to teach could be the pastor of a church and do all the pastoral duties that that come with that, and yet when it came time to teach, ask some other man to step in the pulpit. Unfortunately, that's not often the case because we assume that the guy behind this thing has all the power, and that's not the right way to look at it. So a pastor has to be able to teach, but that doesn't mean they're gifted to teach, and if not, they should not think too highly of themselves. They should assign a teaching role to somebody else. That's not using sound judgment if they step into the pulpit to teach. So Paul's teaching on serving in our gift leaves us with three important principles. I went through the list quickly because his point was to just run through it quickly and make the point. What is the principle you want to come out of this with? Well, there's three, as I see it, that should guide your pursuit of sanctification within the body of Christ. That first principle, probably the most important, we are not permitted to live our Christian life as an island isolated from the rest of Christians. Paul's instructions here anticipate that you are joining yourself to a congregation of believers, right? What he just said couldn't work if you stay at home on Sunday. So spiritually speaking, you and I do not exist separate from one another in the body of Christ. We are one body spiritually. So neither should we try to live that way in practice either. Hebrews warns us against forsaking the gathering for the very reason that it will weaken your walk And the walk of others. So when you think of this now in terms of sanctification, if you look at the bullseye, if you've done the homework of of the center bullseye, you're working on that daily sacrificing of your of your nature, you're thinking about renewing your mind, you're working on that, and then you want to go to the next ring, and you look at that next ring and you say, Oh, the next ring is where I gotta spend time in church. Yeah, I don't like any of the churches in this city. I'm gonna skip that step and I'm gonna go to the next ring where I can be a witness for Christ. Well, good luck with that. Because according to what Romans twelve teaches, you can't do that. In fact, you won't do that. In fact, I have yet to find the Christian who is antithetical to corporate gathering and yet is incredibly effective in a witnessing role or evangelistic role. I've never found that person. I found people who've tried and they've always failed in my experience because you're not drawing from the strength of relationships in the body to work with relationships outside the body. That's the point. Our participation in the body is a principle that underlies all of this. Second principle. Participation in the body must take the form of service in some capacity. Each of us has been assigned a role within the body, Paul says, based on a gifting, and the giftings are always directed at service to the needs of someone. 
And the very presence of that gift in you presumes you will direct your energies towards serving with it. You have a responsibility to live up to that opportunity that God has made available to you to serve your fellow brothers and sisters. So if you've taken the step of getting off the couch and going to church on Sundays, that's great. But you can't trade the couch for a cushy pew seat. You know, that's still sitting. You have to find a way to move off of that stage and into a service opportunity somewhere within the body where you're still not fulfilling the purpose of that next ring. And I would add, after all, if you've ever had an assigned role anywhere else in your life, in your home, in your business, on a sports team, then you know how this goes, right? If, if you don't play your role, how does that work out in those, in those settings, right? Or think of it the other way around. If someone else on your team or in your business or in your home is not feeling obliged to fulfill their role, doesn't that bother you? Wouldn't it bother you when a teammate doesn't do their part on the team or when workmates don't show up and do their part or in the home, right? And if you're feeling like, well, I don't want to let my teammate down or I don't want to let my workmate down, so I'm going to do my part. Well, shouldn't you feel all the more about your brothers and sisters in the body of Christ? It's just funny how the ways we think about those environments change when you get into the church in unhealthy ways sometimes. You know, we, we leave ourselves in a position of disconnectedness and privilege and I'll choose to do what I choose to do when I choose to do it. And we just don't have any sense of obligation or commitment to one another. But in every other sphere of life, we understand that we have to have those things. We can't do less for Christ, can we? And then the final principle. We have to adopt and maintain an attitude of humility in all our relationships within the body of Christ. Firstly, you know that your place in the body has been assigned to you by God, and therefore you can't look at it like some kind of personal merit. If God's told everyone where they are to be by their gifting, then no one is in any position because they earned it or because they're better than you. It's random as far as we're concerned. God just assigned us all where he wanted. So there's no value there. And you can't assign yourself greater value compared to someone else because of how you're serving. You can't look down on the person who cleans the toilets or think better of yourself because you're in the band. Those things have meaningless differences to God. How can you assume you're inherently more important than another believer when everyone is where they are because God told them to be there? And then secondly, because when you do achieve a result of whatever kind through your service, you also understand that the result is due entirely to the Lord because it was through a spiritual gift he gave you that resulted in the outcome. So you have no basis for crediting yourself for any of your achievements. So all the glory belongs to God. No matter who is what in the body, and no matter what you achieve in that, it's all God's or it's nothing. So humility is the underlying principle, third underlying principle, for how we work in our sanctifying efforts within the body. We show up, we serve, and we stay humble about it. And you'd be amazed at how much work can happen in your heart when you have that attitude within the body of Christ. So all the relationships we have in the body of Christ are built on a foundation of a commitment to the body, to serving in humility in our assigned place. From those three principles, Paul now moves into a series of exhortations, still on the same topic of body relationships in the body, but now these are general things that guide the nature of our relationships in the body. So the first things dealt with the manner, how and where. Now he's dealing with the nature of the relationship. Now, I want to warn you up front. This passage we're going to read that finishes the second ring goes to verse 13. Not very long, right? It's five verses. Well, it has 13 commands in it. And any single one of them is incredibly convicting. So we're going to go through it with, through the rest of tonight. But as you listen to this list, if you're not feeling convicted, you're not listening. So let's go through it. Verse 9, Paul says, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. 
not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. All right, well, the list begins with love, of course. As you probably could guess, the Greek word for love that's being used here is agape, love, which is self-sacrificial love. You could say it this way. The biblical view of love is a verb. It's not a noun. When we talk about love within the body of Christ, it's a verb. It's an action. Christian love is an action. It's not a feeling. There's a lot of people you have to love that you don't like. And the action is a sacrificing of self for the sake of another. That's what love looks like when it's acted out, just as Jesus lays life down for us. And that's the ultimate display of love, according to the Bible. So Paul is asking the church to maintain a self-sacrificial attitude of love for one another. That is, things like we all hear our parents tell us, think of someone else before yourself. Let someone else have the better seat in the church. Let someone else have the last donut. Take out the trash before someone asks you, even if it's not your job. I mean, it's the kind of things that instinctively we understand are kind and considerate and self-sacrificial, but in the moment we can often lose sight of that's the moment to show love. That's the moment to be the loving person in the church. But then Paul adds this caveat to the command. He says you have to do all of that without hypocrisy. Now, hypocrisy is portraying yourself in a way that is not in keeping with reality. So it means, this is the way I like to say it, it's trying to gain credit for selflessness without actually doing any required sacrifice. If we could just have the credit for that, but not actually having to do that, that's what we want. It's like volunteering for service projects in the church, but you never show up. You know that person? Uh, Promising to support missionaries financially when they come for a visit, but you never write a check. Assuring sick members of the congregation, oh, don't worry, I'll pray for you. You never do. That is love with hypocrisy, which is, of course, no love at all. It's simply hypocrisy. Paul is saying you have to be self-sacrificial and then you actually have to do the things that the sacrifices require. It's, it's self-serving and corrosive in the unity of the body if you're otherwise, if you're hypocritical. You can sometimes sense that in a large, in a body of believers if you're a part of that body. You can begin to sense if the culture has a high tolerance for hypocrisy or a low tolerance. And high tolerance typically comes out in the form of a very superficial kind of relationship atmosphere. Nobody really knows much about anybody. Everybody's high, fine, high, fine, great, I'm fine. There's not a lot of depth in anything else that goes on. And that's actually love with hypocrisy because whatever sacrifices are being made are minimal and temporary and there's no real sense of love because I don't really know what I need to sacrifice for you. I don't know what the needs are. You want to guard against that kind of atmosphere. So hypocritical love, self-serving love, is an inappropriate way to try to reach people within the body of Christ. And Paul's bullseye chart teaches that you cannot prosper in an outer ring if you haven't done the hard work of an inner ring. So what that means in the case of self-sacrificial love is that if you won't show the church the love of Christ in a self-sacrificial way, then if you haven't disciplined yourself to do that within the body of Christ, why do you think that when you reach the world and how it treats people, you're suddenly going to find all this self-sacrificial love welling up and you'll be willing to show it out there? If you're willing to take the last seat in the room while an old lady stands in the back in church, then how are you thinking that you'll suddenly be the self-sacrificial one when it comes to dealing with unbelievers who are far harder to work with? That's the principle of this bullseye. You practice these things in a place where it's safe, relatively safe, and reaffirming and encouraging so that when you're moving outward into places that are far less so, you've got a reserve of experience and maturity to draw upon. So we should be practicing it here, if anywhere. 
I've never met a successful evangelist who was not also a selfless servant to the body of Christ. And conversely, the worst ambassadors for Christ that I've ever met are those that have this self-serving hypocritical attitude toward the body of Christ. So if you can't adopt the loving sacrificial attitude among your family here, you're not going to show it to strangers. That's one. Number two, Paul says, abhor what is evil. And I'm combining this one because he does while clinging to what is good. Obviously, he's put those together as a couplet. The Greek verb translated abhor, it appears only here in the New Testament. It's a particularly strong word for hate. And the Greek word for cling, uh, it literally means to be glued. So what he's saying is to hate evil the way God does, and then to be affixed, stuck to what is good at all times. And we know Paul's teaching about how you live among other believers, right? So at first glance, you would think this is going to be pretty easy, right? Within the body of Christ, it shouldn't be hard for me to celebrate what is good and to reject what is evil because I'm surrounded by a bunch of people who should have exactly the same mindset. So they should encourage me in those things, right? They should applaud my convictions because they should share those things. But that's not exactly the way it is in church, is it? We know the world will mock our convictions and tempt us to go against them. The world will call evil good and good evil. And so we know when we get outside the church, it's going to be much harder for us to stick to these commands, right? To abhor evil and to cling to good. And therefore, if the body inside the church isn't able to resist evil, when it's surrounded by like-minded believers, then I don't think it's going to have any hope to do that when it gets outside the church. And isn't that in some places anyway, exactly what we see happening to the body of Christ today? They're embracing the world in all that it values, because back home in the church, those same values are being supported, or at least not rejected. And so when I see my brothers and sisters embracing things that I shouldn't say, do, read, watch, think, well then, when that's the norm in the church, I have no basis or reason anymore to think differently about the way the world thinks, because we're in unity with the world at that point. So Paul says in the church especially, We have to hold a strong line on these things because it's going to be the only hope we have to hold it when we get outside the building. If you choose a church community that does not obey these commands, you're not going to have the support you need to resist temptation, so find a better church. Paul's next couplet says, Be devoted to one another like brothers and sisters, but give preference to one another in honor. These two also go together. The first half of his command, be devoted to one another, that's pretty easy to understand, right? He says, be devoted in love, but he uses a different word for love now. He uses the word Philadelphia, which is the word for brotherly love. So he wants you to recognize that those you know within the body are your true brothers and sisters. The believers in the body of Christ are your true brothers and sisters. We have a saying, right, blood is thicker than water. It means that you should favor family relationships over friendships. But in this case, we're not talking about the physical bond of blood, but a spiritual bond of faith in Jesus Christ. And that spiritual bond that unites you to brothers and sisters in the body of Christ is actually stronger than the physical bond that unites you to your physical brothers and sisters. Because, and here's why, in a day to come, when your body dies, any blood bond that you have dies with it. Because the definition of an earthly brother or sister, I mean, just a dictionary definition of brothers or sisters, is someone whose body originated from your mother's womb. So if you and someone else both originated from your mother's womb, your brothers or your sisters, by definition. Well, what happens when your physical body is gone? When your physical body is gone... The definition of brotherhood or sisterhood physically is gone with it. There's no tie to the other person anymore. You no longer share the same physical body connection anymore. 
So in the moment that your body dies or everyone's body is gone, the only relationships that will still exist are the ones you have in spirit, not in the ones you had in body. And in eternity, you'll be surrounded by others who share the same spiritual relationship you have, which is with Christ. Therefore, Paul says, why don't we start living now with eyes for eternity? We need to recognize now that our spiritual brothers and sisters in the church are truly our only real brothers and sisters. You can still honor and enjoy your family relationships. He's not asking you to trade away from those. But our earthly relationships must come second to our spiritual relationships when there's a contention for any reason. So practically speaking, this means that when my relationship in the church, when those relationships come into conflict with any relationship I have outside the church, whether that's a family relationship, a friend, whoever, I give preference to my church relationship. Now notice this agrees with the bullseye principle. Remember we said last week that one of the ways you use this chart is that you understand that the inner rings take priority over outer rings when there is a conflict between rings. The inner ring here of the church relationship takes priority over the next ring out of it, which is the relationship you have with unbelieving people. So if our parents, for example, are unbelieving, our earthly parents, if they were unbelieving, we honor them as Scripture expects, unless and until honoring them comes into conflict with the needs of the body. And at that point, the needs of our relationships in the body of Christ must take precedence over the needs of an honoring of our parents. And obviously, we want to look for ways to accommodate both as much as possible. But when conflict is unavoidable, this tells us how we choose. And similarly, if the church is asking us to do something that God himself has asked us not to do, well, then we favor our relationship with God over our relationship with the church. So the bullseye takes precedence over the the ring of the church and so on. So Paul says, be devoted to those who are truly your brothers and sisters. But then he gives us a caveat. He says, well, give that preference, though, in honor. In honor. That is, you should seek to give preference to your brothers and sisters in the body of Christ in doing so only so long as you don't bring dishonor upon the name of Christ in the process. You can't allow your preference for a fellow believer to become cause for you to do something that is wrong. So if you're a judge in a court... You can't permit a miscarriage of justice in your court in order to show favor to a Christian defendant. Or if you're a bookkeeper, you can't cover up for a fellow Christian's embezzlement. Or if you're a hiring manager, you can't give preference to the Christian job candidate if the law prohibits such favoritism. You have to do what's honoring to Christ in the midst of honoring your brothers and sisters. But where the law gives no barrier and you have choice between an unbeliever and a believer, favor the believer with the job assignment, with the bonus, with the opportunity to to have something that you have to offer. Again, within honor, you favor the believer over the unbeliever. Why? Because which of them will you know in eternity? Which of them do you have a lasting relationship with? Which one will you know forever? Which one will you not? Next, Paul asks not to lag behind in diligence, remaining fervent in spirit and serving the Lord. All three of these commands relate to our effort and our commitment to serve, so put them together. Be diligent, remain fervent, and serve the Lord. Let me show you how they fit. You can sum these three commands up with three words. Effort, desire, and purpose. Effort, desire, and purpose. We serve one another with a consistent effort, earnestly desiring for the purpose of serving Christ. It always hurts the body of Christ if someone is not diligent in the work that they've been assigned. In some ways, it's worse when a believer steps up to serve from perhaps previously just been sitting. They get involved, they step up, they serve, and then they don't come through. They're not dependable. They're not reliable. They make promises they don't keep. They tell you they're going to do things they don't do. They start the work and won't finish it. They're not reliable. That's worse, usually, than if they never got involved. 
Being diligent is the opposite of that. It's a player on a team who pulls his weight. It means being consistent. It means making commitments you will keep. It means promising only what you know you can deliver so that you don't uh, mislead people. You do your part to serve and support the body. And that's not an excuse for aiming low, by the way. You don't turn around and say, well, I don't want to overpromise and underdeliver, so I'm just going to promise a very little. Uh, that's just excuse for not getting involved. Do all that you can and then keep your commitments. And do it in the right spirit, fervently, not begrudgingly, not with a chip on your shoulder, not expecting repayment, fervently, desiring to further the mission of the church. And also, don't become discouraged in the work because you don't get the results you anticipated or you don't get the personal recognition you expected or you didn't get your way in the way things were done. You're not serving in the right spirit if those are the conditions under which you're willing to serve. And finally, your service is directed toward the Lord. It's not directed toward people. It's not directed toward projects or institutions. I mean, if you're serving the church because you admire your pastor, you're not serving for the right reasons. If you're serving because your church pays you, you're not serving for the right reasons. If you're serving because you enjoy receiving accolades or accomplishment of a job well done, you're not serving for the right reasons. Because ultimately, all of those reasons are going to fail you sooner or later. Pastors are going to fail you. Churches cut their staff. Accolades have a way of turning into complaints. And when that happens, what reason will you have then to serve? What will get you up in the morning after those things go away? You know, the pastor that that disappoints you and betrays your trust, as some will do, you know, that's often the excuse people say for giving up on the church altogether. That's just proof that they were in for the wrong reason to start with. Now, on the other hand, if your reason for serving is to please Christ, well, that commitment will never waver because Christ never wavers. Your effort remains consistent. Your attitude will remain fervent. You'll be unfazed by setbacks and disappointments. That's the kind of consistency that Paul's asking us to demonstrate in the body of Christ. I get up every morning, I serve Christ, because he isn't changing, he isn't disappointing me. All the people around me are, but I don't care. I wasn't in it for them to begin with. I'm in it for Christ. Because one day I stand before him, and it'll be his judgment that will matter at that point. So, in verse 12, Paul adds, Do this rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, and devoted to prayer. This is another threesome that's obviously connected. And I love the way Paul connects this. He connects rejoicing, which is obviously one end of a spectrum, with tribulation, which is at the other end of the spectrum, and in the midst of all that, devoted to prayer, which is simply to say when your prayer life typically goes down the toilet is when everything's great, and when it reemerges out of nothing, it's when life's giving you hardship. And Paul denies this pattern by calling upon us to maintain that commitment to prayer, regardless of whether you're rejoicing or whether you're in tribulation. He says you're to be devoted to prayer regardless of whether your days are filled with joy or not. But before we look back at prayer any longer, let's look at those first two briefly, beginning with rejoicing and hope. He says rejoice in the hope. What is hope? You know, there's a fad now in culture to talk about faith without defining what we're talking about. I have faith. I love, you know, I'm a person of faith. I'm faith, faith, faith. But faith needs an object or it has a, it's meaningless, right? Faith in what? And they leave the what out because then they're not committed to anything. It just, it's hypocritical, right? It makes them appear as though they are something that they truly aren't. And the same is true with hope. Hope is another of the same sort. You say, I I have hope in what? Because if your hope's in the wrong thing, it's a very bad thing because you're going to be disappointed. And hope without an object is a meaningless statement. So when Paul says we should have hope, it's not without an object. He's assuming you know the object already, and it's an object in the Bible. Anytime the Bible speaks of the Christian's hope, it's always a reference to our expectation to be resurrected. The hope of our faith is our resurrection. Resurrection from the dead is the hope 
of a Christian. Now, we know that Christ is the means by which we have these things, and Christ is at the center of all that we are. That's not any less true. What we're saying is, now that I am in Christ, what am I hoping for? And what we're hoping for is the promise of our resurrection. That is that death will not be the end of us. Because of our faith in Christ and what he did on the cross, we likewise will one day have another physical body that will live forever and it will never die. Resurrection is at the center of your faith. It's what your water baptism pictures. A lot of people get baptized and don't even know that's what they're portraying, is their their own death and resurrection in Christ, in the water and back out. There can be no greater hope than a resurrection because there is no greater jeopardy than death. So Paul says, you should be rejoicing in that specifically, which means you should be mindful at all times about what your faith and hope is actually in. Don't place your hope in things of this earth, not in people, not in the church in its physical form, not in any of the things you want to do as a body or outside the body, not in any emotional platitudes that you get from a a sermon on Sunday. You don't rejoice because Christians are supposed to be happy, healthy, and successful, because that ain't true anyway. Not, not biblically. We're often unhappy, unhealthy, unsuccessful, and a lot of people in the Christian faith are poor. So what keeps them rejoicing? It is they remember that they have overcome this world, and one day they'll receive a reward in a resurrected body, never to die again. As long as you're fixed on that hope, you don't really care what comes and goes in the course of your earthly life. Not as much, certainly. On the flip side, you persevere in tribulation. Now, notice Paul didn't demand that the church pretend to be happy in tribulation. He didn't ask for that. He's a realist. He knows you can't fake what's true in your heart. He himself suffered in things at times, and according to his own testimony, shed tears. What he asked for, though, is that we would persevere in the midst of these things. That is, you can't use life's troubles as an excuse to give up on serving in the church or in gathering with other believers at all. You know, did a previous church or or pastor let you down? Well, then just move on and invest in another body. Don't keep worrying about what happened in the past, right? Have you faced loss or rejection? Maybe because you are a Christian? Well, just press on without fear of such things. Uh, Did church politics or unsupportive leaders or unkind brothers or sisters treat you unfairly and now you're wounded? Well, put your faith and trust in Christ. People will always let you down. The Lord uses difficult things like that to prompt in us spiritual growth. And there is some kinds of spiritual growth that can only happen when you go through difficult circumstances. And so when those tough times come, Paul asks us to persevere in our walk with Christ and in our relationships in the body so that we can actually gain the benefits of what that tough stuff was supposed to produce. Because if you give up when the trials come, then you lose the benefits of them. And in my experience, you get to repeat the whole process again until you learn the lesson. And then finally, pray and under all circumstances. This is This is an area I've been putting more time into lately for my own sake, devoting myself to more prayer. And it's become apparent to me what that does for you in ways you can't understand apart from actually engaging in it. He says, be devoted. And the word devoted there would mean you think about prayer, time in prayer, the same way you think about something like marriage, which is another thing we think of being devoted to. When someone is devoted to marriage, they never forget they have a spouse. They might forget their spouse, but they never forget they have a spouse. When you're married, you never get tired of being faithful to your marriage. You know what I'm saying? It doesn't wear, wear you down to be faithful to something you're devoted to. You don't treat the relationship as expendable or optional when you're devoted to it. And I think that's the attitude he wants you to take to prayer. You never forget to pray when you're devoted to prayer. You don't grow tired of it. You don't see it as optional. It's like marriage. It's part of who you are. It's not just something you're doing. So if you lack an appreciation for how important prayer is in your walk with Christ, I think that would be a sign that you're not praying enough. Because you all understand the mechanics of it, but you can't fully appreciate how God uses it in your life until you're really devoted to it. 
You could compare that, I think, to how you ride a bike. You know, if I could explain to someone who's never ridden a bike how to ride a bike, it would actually be a pretty easy conversation because the mechanics of it are pretty simple. They would understand what I'm saying, but they actually would have no clue what it's like or even how to do it properly until they actually wrestle with a bike for a while. And only through that experience would they get to understand what I was trying to explain to them in words. And I think devotion to prayer is similar to that. Unless you're devoted to praying regularly and do it for a while, you're not going to discover what it's really about. Even if I explain it to you, you're not going to get it. It's just the way it works. And then finally in verse 12, Paul connects the two acts of of mercy. He asks us, contribute to the saints and practice hospitality. The first command concerns the needs inside the church. Give money to the needs of the body. That's the the New Testament obligation for every believer. And that is not tithing. Technically speaking, we're not talking about tithing. Tithing is an Old Testament term. It comes out of the law, and it applies only to the Jewish nation. The tithe under the law was a specific amount that was required for specific needs. There were actually three distinct tithing requirements in the law. So altogether, Jews gave somewhere between 20 to 30% of their annual income to the temple. They were paid to the temple by requirement. It was not optional. It was not flexible. You couldn't decide where to send your money. None of that applies to the church. None of it. We're not under the law given to Israel. The guidelines for us then come out of the New Testament. And the guidelines is, the guideline of the New Testament is give to the needs of the saints. It's general. No specific requirement. There is another passage in 1 Corinthians 16 where Paul gives a few more guidelines. But in general, it's just two points. Give into the church for the need of a believer and support fellow believers with that giving. Fund the work of believers who serve God in evangelism, teaching, pastoring, and the like. Fund the physical needs of believers who are worthy of that support. And that's a different category. Not all needs within the body, not all physical needs within the body of Christ are worthy of support by fellow believers. Paul makes that clear in another letter. Our call to be giving is to the needs of the body concerning the work of the church. In some cases, to the physical needs of people. And you may want to also support some non-Christian charity, you know, public radio or United Way or whatever, but that type of support is fine. It's up to you, but that does not qualify as the support of meeting the needs of the saints. Secondly, the giving details are completely left to you in the New Testament. You can give whatever you want, how often you want, to whomever you want within the context of the church. There is no biblical requirement that you give your money to the institutional church. There is no requirement that you give it on a certain schedule or to a certain amount. The test for every believer is whether you are responding to the leading of the Spirit and you'll only answer to Christ with what you did with your money. The question you need to ask is, am I giving what God has called for me to give to the places he's called me to give it? Am I listening? Am I even asking? Or am I just conveniently letting this issue stay in the background so I don't have to think about it? God will judge you. No one else will. And that's coupled with his final command of this list, which is addressed to the needs of unbelievers. That is, maintain a heart of hospitality toward the world. And the reason I know this is toward the unbeliever is because hospitality in Paul's day was very different and very specific compared to what we think of it as today. In Paul's day, culture demanded that a stranger be given accommodation in homes, and especially when no alternative was available. So if a traveler was moving through and stopped in your town overnight and was sitting in the town square without somewhere to stay, someone in that town needed to invite that person into their home. Because to be caught outside at night in this day and age was, was quite dangerous. And so everyone took it upon themselves to be hospitable and to do otherwise brought great shame on that town and on anyone who would have rejected that traveler. Paul's emphasis in this command is on being willing to help strangers, which in this context would mean unbelievers. So you open your homes, you make accommodations to unbelievers whenever practical. 
And that then would create opportunity for the church to fulfill its mission. So here's the basic rule. Give your money to believers. Give your hospitality to unbelievers. That principle explains why you may find at times church leaders advising you against giving money to that unbeliever who's begging at the street corner or comes to the door of the church for benevolence. Why would we turn them away and not give them money? Because the money that the church has and stewards is for the needs of the saints, according to Scripture. But the church doors or the the doors of, of homes of the church members, they could remain open to providing food or shelter or other types of hospitality to that person, just not cash, because that's not hospitality at the, at the end of the day. You can do these other meaningful things and provide care and charity, but those things also hold the possibility of establishing a relationship from which then you can present the gospel, which is ultimately what you care for in that person's life. So putting a $20 bill in their pocket won't win them for Christ, and it probably accomplishes little else except getting them high for another day. So don't mislead yourself and think that you've done the right thing by shooing them away with a quick gift. So it's actually a harder thing to do what the Bible's asking you to do. Right? That person who comes looking for a handout, you say, no, but I'll feed you at my house tonight, come by. Now, if it's not appropriate, you're not safe, it's, it's, it's a man and a woman or something, there's other ways you could do it. Take them to a restaurant. But the point is, that's a harder investment on your part, isn't it? But that's what Scripture is actually looking for if our interest is in that individual, truly in their needs. So that's where Paul ends this list. Now, notice, we'll come back to this next week, but you notice right at that point, Paul's introduced the thought of an unbeliever, which is the springboard from which he moves into the next ring, talking about our relationships in the world, where we go next in the ring that follows, okay? Uh, Dear Father, thank you, Lord, for this teaching, for the reminder that we have these things in our life, Father, that need to be addressed within the body if we hope to be a witness for you in the world. I do ask, Father, that you would um, guide our thoughts on each of these. We can't address 13 commands at the same time, Father, and you know that too. So, Father, I pray that for each of us in our respective areas of of our walk, that you would focus our attention on, on what particular area or areas are most of concern for you, and that the Spirit would convict us on these things, and we would start to devote ourselves to that area, that concern, so that we might grow in our walk within the body, preparing ourselves, Father, for greater things. Thank you, Father, for this uh, reminder, for the, for the conviction that it brings, and for the strength you give us in the Spirit to obey. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.